Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Episode 15 with Bill Tai. Welcome back. I apologise for taking a short break over the Christmas period. I did agonise over whether to put an episode up or not, but in the end I decided I'd have a, a Monday off, first one in a while. But I'm back now. These are going to continue every Monday um, until I run out of ideas, I guess. Thanks for your patience in waiting. I hope you all had a great Christmas and are looking forward to a good New Year. This should be going out on New Year's Eve. So if you're driving somewhere for a party, then hopefully it can keep you entertained. Or maybe you can just lie there feeling sorry for yourself on New Year's Day with a bit of a hangover listening to it to ease you through into the start of the, the next year. This week, I've got a very interesting guest, a gentleman called Bill Ty. I was quite honoured to be granted some time with him because he's an exceedingly busy man, as you'll discover from listening to the podcast. Um, Bill and I sat down at the West Tech Fest in Australia. Thanks to Paula Taylor for taking me over there um, and getting me that time with Bill as well and arranging it and making it all happen. Um, It's a really interesting chat about a lot of things. Uh, Bill, if you've never heard of him, he's known as the the venture capitalist kiteboarder. He's one of the most successful tech venture capitalists in the business and has funded countless companies and has been involved in so many startups it's hard to even get your head around it but if you fancy learning a little bit more about him then i'd recommend a quick google after you've listened to the podcast because what we chat about just barely touches on the magnitude of the impact that he's had on the planet and the companies that are out there that you know you or i maybe take for granted or perhaps don't take for granted as much as well He's also a passionate kiteboarder, um, which stemmed from a love of windsurfing. So we chat about his passion for water sports as well. Obviously, his unbelievable career in tech gets quite a bit of a mention. And that's certainly an interesting insight for me. Um, I didn't know half of the things that he'd got up to until we sat down and had the chat. And we also discuss his new passion, um, which isn't that new, I guess, a bit unfair to say that, but his passion for sustainability and protecting the oceans. As a kite boarder, he talks about how he was always using the oceans and then as he got older in life, he realised that perhaps it was time to, to make some changes and see if he could affect some change on the planet and make things better. And having sat down at the, the West Oz Tech Fest on Rottnest Island, which was all about sustainability and the issues with overfishing and the continuing plastic problem, it was great to see that Bill really is making a difference. So we talk a little bit about that and some of the, the scary prospects perhaps for the future if we don't all start making changes. It's a really good episode. I think you'll like it. It's definitely a, a pretty amazing one to kick off the new year with. So I hope you enjoy this one. And without any further chat from me, let's just get straight into it. Enjoy. Today, I'm sat with a very interesting gentleman, and I'm uh, exceedingly privileged to be given some of his time. His name is Bill Ty, and he is probably best known as being the venture capitalist kiteboarder. That's certainly the moniker he gets given on a lot of uh, interviews and websites when he is uh, speaking to various media outlets and things like that. Bill's got an incredibly interesting story, one I know a little bit about, but I'm hoping to learn a little bit more by chatting to him today. So, Bill, my first question to you was, originally you were into windsurfing and that kind of water sports. When did you get into that? How did you get into that? Uh, So when I was in uh, graduate school, I I took sailing lessons. So a little bit late in life, but I took sailing lessons in the Charles River at Harvard. Yeah. And in between my years at business school, 
Um, you know, I would actually, so when I was younger, I was actually always a, a pretty good athlete, okay. and generally speaking, and pretty nimble. And, and I took these uh, sailing lessons in the Charles River in a boat called an interclub. Yeah. You know, not super fast, but, you know, easy to learn on. And I picked it up pretty quick. And I, rather than going up and into bigger, bigger boats, um, I wanted, I, I went down to windsurfing and <laughs> it was just great you know yeah. so I, I went into windsurfing like pretty quickly after that what I, sort of year are we talking about then in the that, 80s like, in the 80s yeah. so that was when windsurfing was in its infancy then it yes. was quite, and it was a boom sport back then yeah, it absolutely I, exploded didn't yes it? yeah i tend to get drawn like in technology i get i tend to get drawn to new things that are intellectually interesting and yeah. uh and windsurfing was just kind of hitting the scene and and uh, i adapted to it pretty quick and then ended up uh, uh, being relatively good at it. I actually, you know, got to a point where I was wave sailing and I, I could do uh, loops off of a wa- wow. off of waves. Yeah, so serious. You yeah. were actually properly into it. Yeah, and then and then I ended up uh, meeting uh, a bunch of pros from Hawaii. Right. Uh, and at the time, there was a, a guy that was on a lot of magazine covers, uh, uh, riding down the face of Jaws, Sierra Emery. Okay, yeah, I remember him. him. Yeah, and uh, so... I did a wave sailing trip much later, uh, like around 99, 2000, to Baja, Mexico. To, oh, is uh, that Punta San Carlos? Exactly. Yeah, that cool. place is insane. Exactly. With uh, Sierra Emery and Ricker Alford, who at the time owned Extreme Sports Maui. Okay. And uh, we were wave sailing, and they happened to bring a couple, the first uh, kind of production kites, Whippica two-line yeah. kites. And as a windsurfer... If you're a wave sailor, you you know the setup. You basically yes. get on the front of a wave and you you do your best to kind of ride it. But if it doesn't play out, you're stuck. Yeah. And uh, and if you go down, it's, it's like a twenty messy. minute. Yeah. It's <laughs> like it's a haul to get back up and get you know through a wave break and then back on. And Sierra and uh, Rick were basically hopping over the waves they didn't want. And, yeah. and and Light I look oh my god I thought that is so efficient <laughs> yeah I am so in yeah fantastic and then, and then it just so happened that that winter um, Laird Hamilton was uh, Robbie Nash was trying to get Laird Hamilton to use his kites yeah and Laird I was experimenting with him and he's kind of a big guy and he had a nine five nine meter AR five right uh, first four line production kite out of Nash and. Uh, and it was too small for him. So he gave it to a friend who gave it to a friend. And that friend, whose name is John Murray, um, got the kite and said, I'll never use this, but I know someone crazy enough <laughs> to that give well. it a go. And I got a call. And the next thing I knew, Laird Hamilton's old kite was in my lap. No way. Fantastic. And, and I taught myself to kite on that uh, kite in the spring of 2001, as soon as the wind came up. So really back in the early days, that's about the same time. I think I started learning in 2000, so yeah. around that similar time. And I remember that yes. kite, the Nash AR5. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty different back then. Learning. It was very so, different. Yeah. yeah, and was it an instant love affair? Like you'd seen it on the water. Was it that instant buzz that you got from it when you first flew it? Well, well, you know, actually. So um, while I am t- typically kind of you know manic- meticulous about knowing what I need to know before I get into something, I think I was a little overconfident. Okay, and I took that kite to a field at Coyote Point in California. And I had a friend of mine that I used to windsurf with. We rigged it up. I didn't read the manual. And he <laughs> threw it in the air direct downwind. 
Ah, and uh, you went for a ride. Oh my God, on a field, and uh, <laughs> and I wasn't near the water. I was just trying to like fly the kite, and um, the uh, the field. So the kites in those days didn't have releases. No. They didn't and, want to risk it, did they? No. With the lawsuits coming in, if the release didn't work, so they just there was no release. Uh, you know, I, around it, I, I think. think it was partially that, and I think I think maybe the type of people using it at the time were mostly athletes that yep. were the the biggest fear was losing the kite. Yeah, and you not, just spent a fortune on. Yes, and they were so, quite hard to get hold of as well, weren't they? Yeah, those early days, there weren't thousands and thousands of them like there are now. Yeah, so the kite was basically velcroed to your wrist, and yes. and. Um, uh, my friend threw the kite up in the air. It it hot launched. I went. Uh, I was kind of literally like water skiing across the field, <laughs> and a sidewalk was coming up. I went to go step over no. it, and I pulled on the kite to step over it. And next thing I knew, I was like Supermaning across the field, like oh six God, feet in Benny, the air. That sounds terrible. Oh my God! Yeah, and then I'm trying to get the the wrist leash off, and I finally got it. You know, I unhooked and got got it uh, off, and landed on the on my chest and hands and burned the skin off of my palms no. and and uh, any serious injuries or just no bruises I, and a bruised ego uh yeah i was i was i was stunned at how powerful <laughs> that thing was and and my friend came running up to me and he said are you all right and he told me later he said he, that i was such a knucklehead the only thing i could say was Wow, if I could only control that, <laughs> that would be awesome. And uh, anyway, so I stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up. Uh, That's fighting. good because I, I remember a lot of windsurfers <clears throat> at that time tried it, and because the kit was so dangerous, a yeah. lot of them had that similar experience. Yes, and they were just like, "No, nah, I don't want to know." So that's interesting that for you, you were like. No, I want to control this, and I want to get that. I want to try again. Power. You know, I'm in mean, startup life is like that too. Like you know, when I fund companies or when I, I've started a bunch of companies myself, it's it's. Uh, you don't do it. You know, it's kind of one of these things where you're just wired a certain way, and you wanted to try things because you see a different way to do something, and you think it might be interesting, and you know that it's not going to work right the first time, but you might get close. Yeah. And then you just keep testing and iterating until until you get what you want, and that's yeah. exactly what kite surfing is. Kite surfing, it's one of those things where in reality you're failing 99 percent of the time. You're you're literally failing all the time and course correcting. Real time, ninety nine, yeah. all the time, and and whenever you feel like you're comfortable, if you if you think you're comfortable and you stop thinking about it, splat, yeah. you catch an edge and you face plant or something goes wrong. So, and companies are exactly like that. There's no different. And I guess you're you're spinning a lot of plates when you're kiteboarding. You're thinking about the kite. Yes. You're thinking about the water. You're thinking about your board control. So similar to business, you're always doing a lot of things, wearing a different lots of different hats. It's and stuff a giant like that. multivariate equation. And there's certain people that are wired that they have to be in that environment or they're not happy. And I happen to be like that. Unless I'm working on a lot of stuff, if if I if there's ever a moment of sort of silence, I feel like something's wrong. Yeah. You know, so I, I I think I'm wired to like all the noise and the the, the dynamic system uh, that you have to figure out in real time all the time, and and it keeps me active, keeps my mind active, keeps me happy. Okay, and you've mentioned um, you know the businesses and the startups there. So should we delve into a little bit about how you got into that? 
What did you do at university? You mentioned that's where you learned sailing and got into windsurfing. So uh, it was grad school. Yes. Grad school. So what yeah. were you doing back then? What was your sort of your focus? Were you into computers uh, early on? Or Yeah. So so how I got into that, uh, so my, my dad was an inventor, basically. Okay. Yeah, he's a PhD. He's got 26 patents on molecules, of all things. And Oh, wow. And when uh, when I was a kid, our house was like, you know, like what you'd imagine, like the, you know, uh, the, the professor in Back to the Future, right? You know, like so full of, of crazy inventions and things going lots on. Lots of stuff, yes. And um, and so we would always kind of work on projects and take things apart and rebuild them and all that. And uh, I think when I was uh, in fourth grade, my dad got me a Radio Shack hundred and one electronic projects kit. Okay. Which is basically a little like a wooden box with a cardboard sheet and a bunch of parts, resistors, capacitors, inductors, a relay, a speaker, uh, and springs and wires. And a little book that shows you like connect spring fifteen to spring eighteen and uh, see what and happens. Boom, yeah, get a radio, you know. And and so uh, um, I somehow after playing a lot with electronics as a kid, I I read an article that uh, it's a, now a historic article in Esquire magazine. Okay. Um, called the secrets. I think it's secrets of the little blue box, and it was an article about these two kids in California that had figured out how to make a little blue box that if you placed it on a payphone would play a frequency that would unlock the telephone system and you could make free phone calls. Yeah. I remember reading about that. (laughs) Yeah. And those two kids were Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Yeah. And they they had sold their uh, jobs as a VW bus, bought a bunch of parts, started this business, turned out to be illegal. They had got arrested, maybe arrested and let go, but they had to shut down that business. And and so I found a schematic for that product, and I took apart my Radio Shack kit, and uh, and I got some other parts, and I built one. Oh wow! And uh, so I used to ride around on a bike at this local community college, making phone calls from payphones and to people I didn't know, and. Uh, and just testing it, and uh, and that led to me becoming an electrical engineer. And then when I was in college, I learned how to design computer chips. And uh, I spent my summers basically uh, contracting to pay for school. Uh, when I was a sophomore, I did a, a job for Texas, uh, sorry, Caterpillar Tractor, and I and I built a little adapter that allowed them to measure the difference in time between when a piston hits top dead center and a spark plug fires, and basically okay. a timing analyzer. <clears throat> and then uh, junior year is where I really got into it. I, I got hired by Texas Instruments during the Reagan administration, during the Star Wars period. And somebody must have seen the movie Firefox because they wanted the F-16 to fly by talking to it. Right. And TI was known at the time for uh, digital signal processing, and they had uh, uh, the speak and spell toys and all that stuff. And somebody inside the company had built a, a seven-board computer system that could uh, recognize voice commands, digitize them, map them against uh, a memory bank that had digitized uh, vocal commands, and you could have 40 commands that would output, uh, you know, recognize, and then do, like Siri, but in the 80s. So super early. Yeah, yeah, very early. And uh, and they wanted it to fit in a 2x4x6 cartridge in the cockpit of an X-15, and I was somebody that knew how to take circuits and put them on a little silver piece. Yeah, really small. Yeah, so so I got hired to kind of lead a project there and uh, found a couple startups in California that had software. Well, it was there were it was LSI Logic, the LSI Technology, California Micro Devices, AMI Gould, and uh, ended up uh, doing a vendor selection to pick this startup. 
to take that and shrink it down. And I love that technology so much that I joined that startup when I got out of oh, college. Wow. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it was a funny period because I, I um, you know, very conservative family. Even my dad was like, dad was a crazy inventor. Uh, I had been accepted to uh, to Harvard and Stanford and, for grad school and had job offers from IBM, Motorola, and Hewlett Packard. But I said, you know, I'm moving to California. And take I'm, a chance on the startup. I'm joining this company because it's just cool. And my dad is like, Alice, I what? <laughs> They're a year and a half old. You're 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 making a big mistake. You should go to Harvard. You should go to Stanford. You should not. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going. Take and, the job offer from the big company, IBM. Like, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, he said that yeah. you could live at home and work. 30 minutes away at IBM, it's very secure. What yeah. are you doing? You know? Yeah, and, uh, you know you're going to get your paycheck every month, and it's going to be a job for life. Yeah. But, so you took a chance. But I moved to California, joined the startup, and it hit, and then, I, and then I went to Harvard later, and that's when I learned to sail. And then, you know, kind of... All kind there. of boom from there. Yeah. And so from a very early um, period in your life, I guess you were always involved around tech and things like that. When did it really start to boom? Because obviously now you're a venture capitalist, yeah. which means you have a bunch of cash that you seed to people and fund people and yeah. help them develop their dreams. So at some point, I'm guessing you must have gone from working on these projects to saying, oh, you know, I've got a project that went boom. I had a company that went boom. So when did that happen? Uh, yeah, so I ended up uh, in venture capital in the early 90s, and it was a very different landscape. The internet didn't exist as okay. we know it today. And so the landscape there was basically um, funding, or the, the startups you would see then were were making computer chips or, you know, kind of disintermediating the vacuum tube, if you knew what that was. You know, like TVs and radios used to have these big things that yeah. look like light bulbs in them. And, and they basically just control the flow of electrons, and you could put them on silicon. So a lot of companies would express uh, the way to steer electrons in these little pieces of silicon that perform different functions. So so there were a lot of companies that did that, and then uh, some companies making computers, like early computers, of course, and, and add-in cards for PCs. And that's when I kind of started in the business, and the communications business was just starting. So companies like Cisco were being yeah. born at that time, and so I started to uh, to fund silicon companies, and I moved up the stack to do kind of routers and switches and hubs and dial-up modem companies, and and then uh, the internet started to hit, and uh, I ended up starting an ISP in 1994. Okay, that uh, that ultimately grew to become a company that owned and operated data centers in 10 com uh, countries wow. in Southeast so Asia. huge. Yeah, it got to be big. And in Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Solomon Brothers together took it public on NASDAQ in year 2000. And that's when I took some time off and I really started kiting a lot. Yeah, because um, you sort of had a bit of spare time and yes. you're like, okay, I've made it almost. Well, so. I was tired of, you know, I mean, I, that you was... You've been working pretty hard for a long period of time to get to that point. That and was you've a, mentioned a lot of different products. There must have been a lot of things going on in your life. So That period of time was crazy for me because I had started this company that had operations in 10 countries. I was on, I had a lot of companies I had funded that went public. So at that point in my life, I was on seven public company boards of companies that I had funded, 15 private companies that I had funded, and CEO of this thing that had operations in 10 countries. And I was a little bit worn out. I remember figuring out at the point that I was like, you know what, this is crazy. I had taken uh, 28 round trips to Asia from California in 18 months. 
All and right. I was on the seven pu private and 15, uh, or sorry, seven public, 15 private companies. And I was like, man, this is crazy. I've been, I've been relatively successful, but my life has stopped. Yeah. You're it's, just literally serving the companies I was on a that treadmill. you built. Yeah, yeah. Treadmill. So I just said, you know what? I'm quitting everything and I'm going to kite for a while. So, so I, I took me three, it took me three years, maybe more than that. Yeah. But it took me about three, three, three years to resign from all those things while I was like hanging around kiteboarding. Still boarding. kiteboarding and trying to step yeah, back Yeah, and having bit. fun. Yeah, trying to have fun. And um, yeah, and then I kind of took a little breather and and then uh, took some, I, I, I did get back in the game again because I could see another change happening when the, uh, <clears throat> when Web 2.0, so-called Web yep. 2.0 started to happen. I could see the shift to the user interface as a place to create value. And so I, I started uh, the West Coast office for a well-known venture firm at the time. It's still well-known called Charles River Ventures. It was a firm that was founded in 1970 to commercialize technology out of MIT. Right. And I set up their West Coast Silicon Valley office and we started seeding a bunch of projects and uh, the fund we put together, we seeded Twitter. We wow. Were the, we were the first 250K to seed Twitter. Wow. Uh, and that rolled into a seed bridge that got bigger and it became, you know, what it is today. But, uh, uh, yeah, and I ended up uh, funding a lot of kind of web companies and then mobile uh, applications like uh, uh, TweetDeck, Boxer, Tango, Lulu. Yeah. Those are all things that I wrote checks for to, to put in play and then um, started a data science company. <laughs> So yes, I can't stop. Sometimes I can't stop starting companies. And yeah, I had, there was a period where I had all these companies that were generating lots of data. And they knew that there was value in that data. There's a phrase that I, I've been using for seven years now. Data is the new oil. Yeah. There's a lot of information in the data if you know how to handle it and how to pull but it out. But it's often hard to manipulate that data and get it out. Exactly. And it's a field called data science. So... For several years, I knew I wanted to start a data science company, and then I finally did. And I, I met uh, a couple of founders, um, a couple of, of people that had uh, worked on a new database, multi a parallel database architecture that's known as Hadoop. And I had a bunch of my companies looking for Hadoop engineers. And I thought, why don't I just start a company that does infrastructure for Hadoop and you guys can all use it. Yeah. And that became Treasure Data. And it was modeled a little bit after, uh, so in 1987, I also did a, uh, a little stint. I went back to Taiwan and I helped the government put together a company that is today called Taiwan Semiconductor, which it's it's amazing. It's I just, I, I, there was just an article in Bloomberg last week about how T, uh, it's called TSMC now, is a real challenger to Intel. And it's um, the company's now worth $200 billion. Wow. You know, it's mind-blowing to – I badge A001 in that company, yeah. and it's just mind-blowing how that has grown. So it was a shared infrastructure for a lot of companies that had design capability that wanted a factory to make their chips. And so I, I had all these web companies that were looking for a way to store data. So we built a, a multi-tenant uh, cloud infrastructure based on Hadoop that would allow companies to basically automatically upload their data and then build algorithms on top of it to figure out what what they wanted to get out of it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And and I I, I had great uh, companies. Uh, so so the companies that in my ecosystem 
I got them to fund it with me, or the individuals to fund it with me. So do you ever use Wish.com? Yes. Okay, so I'm the seed in Wish too. So the, the CEO and CTO of Wish put yep. up some money with me along with the CT, uh, the founding CTO of Farmville. Yep. The data guy. Yep. Uh, the the gro- VP of Growth Revenue Engagement of Twitter. Um, the three founders of Heroku, which did uh, uh, Ruby on Rails infrastructure they acquired by Salesforce.com. And, and we basically seeded this project to build this thing. Wish became our first customer later our first paying customer and there's still a big chunk of the revenue of the company today but we ended up uh, I think onboarding hundreds and hundreds of companies over time and SoftBank just bought it about uh, uh, six months ago wow so it's now the the data infrastructure behind a division of SoftBank called ARM so ARM is a microprocessor yes uh, so yeah. it's Intel microprocessors ARM is the CPU inside every iPhone yeah. every Android phone every car engine every washing machine every microwave that watcher yeah. where it has one that's quite crazy that you've had a little hand in all of this or a big hand in all of yeah. this and to think that you know you've touched so many of these technological outputs yeah, over been the fun. years yeah. yeah it's just wave after it's like not, it's very much like kiting you yeah. know like it's wave after wave after wave and you just gotta pick which one's to ride and you hop on and you try and so what was the first thing where, you know, when you became a venture capitalist, obviously you need some money to do that. Was it that first project that your dad told you not to go and work on that became successful? Or was there something oh, else? That uh, no, got I you joined your... institutional funds in the beginning. You know, I was uh, part of partnerships okay. that raised money and had folks like me that had a sense for market and technology that would invest. And then these companies would grow. And then if there was a, a profit, the investors in the funds would get those and then a share would come to the partners yeah and then you could then reinvest that yeah and it just took you know took me a while to build up stuff and and uh have a couple companies that i had actually written my personal checks to fund um that hit yeah because obviously it's like with anything there's a million people with a million ideas but only one or two facebooks and twitters and all the rest oh yeah so you've got to be quite lucky in what you're choosing what do you look for when you're you're looking at a company are you looking at the people around it or are you looking at the idea behind it what's the sort of uh they're generally two things so generally there's you you, there's a phrase you know you'd rather be lucky than smart yeah but being smart i think is putting yourself in the path of luck and so i look for a large market that's going through a structural change because if there's a if there's like a big change in the market yeah um and you could see it let's say windsurfing transitioning to kiting not that it got replaced but there was a new disruptive technology in a way in that field. And anytime there's a break in the market, there's a chance for a new leader. So Pete Cabrini could step in and compete with Nash. Yeah. Right. You know, and if, if there's a fast moving growth market where there's more demand than supply, you have a chance to fill that void with a new company. And so I'm always looking for what's the next technological break coming in markets that I understand. And then if I can find a good writer and back that person and, and bring to that person resources and capital and network and ideas and the ability to, to help them uh, navigate that wave, then the chances of success are a little bit better. Than just blind luck. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so that's basically what I do. I look for new markets and I try to take, like I did with Treasure Data, I had a lot of smart people that knew the space and a raw engineer that knew the technology. but they weren't sure how to apply the technology into a product. And so I got users with the technologists to put together an implementation that made sense and high value to Wish. You know, so like when you use Wish, 
and you sign on with Facebook, it instantly figures out who you are through a data analysis, knows what to serve you. And as you click on things, there's a machine learning algorithm that's figuring out what What to serve. What you like and what you want to be looking at and that sort of stuff. Exactly. It's like the Amazon recommendation engine. So we, we had that technology, but we gave it to everybody else. It's quite impressive. (laughs) <laughs> and so going back to the kiteboarding a little bit, um, it's 2001, you're just learning. When did you kind of start to crack it? Because obviously back then there were no lessons. You, yeah. know, you probably had it's, to watch a video like oh, I did yeah. and just sort of hope for the best. And it, how long did it, it take you to get it done? Uh, it, it, number of sessions, it was probably, uh, it took me, so it was a small number of sessions, but spread over several years. I think it took me, uh, and I am a data person, so I record things. <laughs> it took me ten runs to go upwind. Okay, and uh, and but it took me three years to to, those. to uh, transition because I was I was I was I was so happy as a windsurfer because it was it was a lot more set up. Yeah, you know, setting up the gear is harder with a windsurfer; it takes longer, but it was a comfortable ride. And kiting, I'd always get blown downwind and have to walk 45, you know, but the, 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 the measurement of time, yeah. you know, by the time I'd get downwind and then have to pack up my, deflate my kite and pack up my gear and walk all the way back up to the upper launch and then reinflate and get going and back on the water again. What's your pleasure to fun ratio here? Yes, it's those like, were 45 yeah. minute loops. And when you're time poor anyway, because you're running all these companies and doing all these things, it becomes difficult. Yeah, so I didn't always go. I would only go when it was high tide and like the conditions were right. And then over, I think I didn't transition fully until about 2003 or four. Okay. I cut over and I kind of got comfortable enough kiting that windsurfing became less interesting to me. Yeah. And the kit was getting better then as well. So 2003, oh, yeah. 2004, all of a sudden, you know, I remember when I started, I was like, I'm just going to do it in light winds because I yeah. windsurf when it's windy. And then gradually the sort of the passion for windsurfing was dying yeah. out and you were thinking, oh, the kit's getting better. I can go out on strong winds without nearly the dying. The Nash Boxer, yeah. Yeah, 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 that Nash Boxer was yeah. a great kite. I actually bought that Nash first Nash Boxer over here years yeah. and years and years ago and used yeah. it over here. Awesome. And I remember being in Perth and there were no kite surfers. Like mm-hmm. I think I saw three. Mm-hmm. And now you come to Perth and you look out, there's hundreds of them. Yeah. You know, it's really boomed. Yeah. And so you're in Silicon Valley a lot still at the time. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, certainly some of the people I've spoken to over at Cabrina, they credit you as being the person that bought kiteboarding huh. to the Silicon Valley well, that may be population, yeah. maybe. <laughs> I, I think I helped make it popular for sure. Yeah, yes. because now it seems like there's a lot of people, like we've, we're just at the, the West Tech Fest today, right. and there's a bunch of people here that, you know, we're, we're chatting and we're talking to them like, what do you do? I, you know, I run this kite surfing magazine and they're, they're all kind of kiteboarding. You know, what do you think is the reason why there's that synergy between business and kiteboarding? Is there a particular reason why it is, or is it just well, the new golf? Uh, I think it's uh, uh, it may not be unique just to Silicon Valley companies, but <clears throat> earlier in our conversation, we were talking about um, what the mind of kind of a startup entrepreneur is like. Yeah, and if you think about the the type of person that is running a technology-based startup company in a very dynamic field full of change. It's a giant multivariate equation that's like a popcorn popper in their head the whole time. And if if things ever go quiet, they feel like something's wrong. So golf is not interesting. No, there's a lot of quiet time in yeah, golf. Yeah, to people like that. Necess- you know, I think there's probably some for sure, but there's a certain kind of startup entrepreneur that when they want to take a break, 
they can't just lay in the sun no, on the beach. They have to be doing something fast right. and active. Yeah, and so the kite surfing thing is a perfect release for somebody like that. And uh, I think right around 2003, and I, I might be off by a year or two, Sergey Brin and Larry Page started a kiteboard, and they were photographed on the bay riding. And they became so iconic over the years, I think 2004, 5, 6, all the startup entrepreneurs wanted to learn how to kite. Because they wanted to be like them. Yes, and I think because I was one of the experienced people that was recognizable in the valley that both as a venture tech, venture tech person and a kiteboarder, a lot of people started to come to me. Yeah. And so that became one of my main net networking fun functions over time. And then uh, uh, over time, I got introduced to Susie Mai. Yeah, that was going to be my next question yes. because obviously the the amalgamation then became you know between business and kiteboarding. Yeah, you know, and that, that was amplified just... it a bit because my my annual networking event, which you know used to revolve around windsurfing in the '90s, and then it became a kiteboarding thing. I brought Susie on as kind of a kite pro, yeah, uh, to kind of just coach people and all that because kite pros often are not good instructors, but they can show people what to do by example. And so Susie became sort of, a, and she was a Cabrina rider. Yes. So that's how I got plugged into the Cabrina system. Because I had been riding, I rode Nash for five generations. Right. It was the AR5. Literally, it was the dumb thing. Yes, and the Nash Arrow, and then I think uh, two generations of boxers. And then I went to GK Sonic for a year okay. or two. Um, and then finally Cabrina, you know, went after I uh, met Susie and then... Our, my kite thing became known as the Mai Tai yeah. for many years. Who came up with the name? It just was, was it just, or, I mean, I know it's a, funny. It's an, but, you know, at some point, it's, sometimes the most obvious things aren't obvious. Yeah. So, I think it was actually James name. Hong. Uh, so I, that part is kind of fuzzy because I, we wanted, uh, I, there was a gal that I helped teach to kite named Natasha Casebolt, okay. who was the girlfriend of the founder of a company called Remark Communities. Who had they moved together to Cabarete and Bill? His name was Bill Lee. Bill, uh, he was into kiting through me, and then he stayed at the Extreme Hotel yeah, in Cabarete. I and I, I remember being in a conference room in California, getting MMS picture messages of kites on the water <laughs> from Bill, saying, "Hey, I found this place. It's amazing. There's a lot of kites in the air. You know, I'm going to go kiteboarding. I love this place. I'm staying at this hotel. I just bought it." No way. <laughs> so he bought the Extreme Hotel. <laughs> and then his girlfriend, Natasha, became the kite instructor. Oh, wow. And so Natasha was the only kite instructor I knew. And so when people started to transition from windsurfing to kiting at my at my little camp, I was like, wow, I can't teach all these people myself. Yeah. And so I passed the hat one year to, to get the plane bear to fly Natasha from Cabarete to Maui. And she became kind of like our coach. The kite instructor at the... Yes. And then the next year, because Susie was from Cabarete and Natasha knew her, Susie came out. Okay. And then it used to be the two of them and then a few more. And then uh, people just started to refer to it as the Mai Tai. And James Hong had started a website called Hot or Not. Okay. And James and Salar Kamangar, who was at Google at the time, and he, he was the creator of AdSense. Oh, wow. That really made the company. And so those two, um, they printed these tennis ball green shirts, rash guards, basically. Yeah. And they put the word Mai Tai on them. And it just sort of clicked. And it stuck. Yeah. So I don't remember what year that was. It might have been like 2006 or seven. And so and these it, business networking <clears throat> meetings that you're running, they've been yeah. incredibly successful, haven't they? Oh, uh, yeah. It kind of became this like uh, kind of a cult. We had a, you know, we still have like a bit of a cult following and... Um, gatherings around the world, including this one, 
you yep. know, in, in Perth, which started as a kite trip seven years ago and is now a 2,000-person tech festival with all these offshoots like this Rado Tech Festival. It goes on for a whole week. Yeah. Yes, it's a week-long thing with like 20 events and 80 unofficial events or something like that. I, I lost count. But it's like a, it's like a mini South by Southwest in the far western corner of Australia. Yeah, that the really, remotest city in the world. Yes, like. came out of a kiteboarding trip. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that's happened uh, to, to me in Norway. We do a snow kiting thing there in Davos. We do kind of a just before World Economic Forum, like a ski thing. And and uh, I can't count the number of things that are like offshoots from this community. But it's been kind of a, a bed of fertilizer for people and ideas and capital to meet and form companies, whether it's, you know, companies like Canva that were born on a true car, was born on a, on a kite trip on Maui. In, uh, through the introduction of Scott Painter, who kited with me, and um, one of the founders of Shazam. Uh, Scott had a company called Zag, and he wanted to start this other thing called TrueCar, and he got Philip to run it. Uh, and then there have been other companies that have found scaling through uh, just word of mouth in our community, like Zoom, yeah. Zoom Video. So I'm one of the, I, I was the first to commit to fund Zoom. And in the early days of Zoom, I basically got a lot of the companies that were involved in our kite network to use it. And uh, and it's just taken off. Bitfury is another one. You know, I'm, uh, I somehow, am, you know, my, my fascination for early technology led me to Bitcoin mining around 2009 and 10. And I ended up meeting um, a kid out of Finland that I was buying Bitcoin from. And he became part of three people that met over the Internet and formed this company, Bitfury, that became one of the world's largest Bitcoin mining operations. Still is. Yeah. And uh, and it's and I think a lot of the traction around that, uh, in terms of its credibility and standing in the world, came from the network that we have because it was just sort of this weird open source thing in this dark area of uh, Silk Road and drugs and all that stuff. And through our community, we basically were able to form a company that has around it, um, you know, the the CEO, former CEO of NYMEX and chairman of CFTC and. Uh, that we just added the former chairman of the SEC to the advisory board. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's like it's it got an air of legitimacy because we had a real community. network around it that you could yeah. add to it. Yeah, it's been great. You mentioned that you know these these trips were born out of a kite trip. Yeah. Originally, you know yes. that's what you're originally doing. Do you still get to kite? When you do these trips, a little have less. You, yeah, have you gone you back know, to the old days where you're so busy? That uh, you're you know, that's less. crossed my mind actually. Because you know, <laughs> on this trip, like I used to come out here and kite for five or six day afternoons, not the whole yeah. day. Because it's and, guaranteed wind in Perth this yes, time of year, pretty and much. And do a couple of meetings and do the contest at the university. And and you know, now a lot of people come with me. They were all on the water yesterday. I wasn't. They were on the water today. I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think I'm going to get a shot to kite on uh, Friday night and Saturday in Exmouth. Yeah. You guys is, are headed up there, right? Yes. So hopefully there'll be Ningle some good the reef. Wind. It's supposed to be beautiful up there, and it's going to be 25 knots. And are you still just as passionate about kiting as you were in those early days? Does it still light your fire? Uh, you know, there's the thing about kiteboarding is that it's it's also still in a point where it's full of change. And the last, uh, so I guess my, I, I, I don't know that I will transition in the same way I did from windsurfing to kiting, but I, I think I've been on a foil board about 26 times over the last five years. Okay. And last summer I was on it maybe, you know, seven of those 26 and I'm not turning yet. But it's starting to click. But I've got it under control, you know, in terms of riding it. So I think uh, it's, 
Kiteboarding is a sport where you're always, if you want to be, you're always learning. Yeah. And you're always challenging yourself. And I think, for me, that's what life is about. Unless I'm, I can't be static. No. If, sta- if I'm static, I feel like I'm dead. And so, as long as there's something interesting where I'm building on a foundation of learning and doing some new things, I'm always going to be energized about it. So, so I, mean, I love going back to the twin tip every once in a while and popping a jump in the air if I've kited for a few days and I feel like I'm tuned. You know, but uh, uh, there's enough variety on surfboards and a hydrofoil that it's still always once I'm on the once I'm rigged and on the water, I am happy. Yeah, it's that magic moment, isn't yeah. it? I think that's key to its success. Really, is the fact that it can be so di- so different. You've yeah. got snow kiting, land yeah. kiting, kite surfing with a twin tip, with a surfboard. You know, the different disciplines within all of that. Just cruising around, doing freestyle, doing big air, doing yeah. jumps, and then hydrofoiling comes along and yeah, just suddenly cool. reignites everybody's fire, and yeah. everybody's all over it again. It's kind of interesting to see how the sports changed over the yeah, years. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Whereas with windsurfing, I think it never really had that. I think when, change. It's got the hydrofoiling now and it had the yeah. different disciplines, but it was never such a drastic, oh, you can do it with this board or you can do it with that board. I think what happened, and this is an individual observation, I think, you know, when, when I started, I had, uh, after I, I kind of got it, I bought my first board, which was a Mistral Screamer. Yeah, remember that board? I think it's 104 liters. Yeah. I remember it. And, uh, and that was a fantastic board, easy to teach people on. And I got a lot of my friends into the sport. But then over the next three or four or five years, I think the crowd took it too far too fast. And the boards yeah. got really fast, but they were narrow. And hard and, to ride. And they were, yeah, they were not stable unless you were going, you know. So, so I remember trying to teach my friends. Everyone I introduced at the screamer level, they loved it. But then as I started to move to different kinds of boards and tried to bring my friends into it, it was too hard for them to water start or, you know, the, the board wasn't floaty enough and, and it was just difficult. So I think the sport built up a, a, its own barrier to new entrants. And so the crowd that came in, in the beginning rode with it, yeah. but they couldn't bring on new people. And I think kiteboarding was a little bit different. I think it was so hard in the beginning, but it got user friendly over the, you know, by 2006, seven and the kites got uh, safer as yeah. well. And I think we haven't entered a period where it's just so well, the foiling has that danger. Foiling, I think, you know, uh, there are user-friendly foils, but I could see that sport being one where it progresses too far too fast ahead of the main crowd. Yeah, it was kind of interesting with foiling because it went from racing, so the first people to pick up foils that weren't racers were just riding race foils because that was all there was because it was what they were doing in France. They're all super high-end and really difficult and hard to ride, and I think now it's kind of come back a little bit. Yeah. So like we were chatting on the boat earlier about these great big suck wings. Yeah, I'm excited to try those. Yeah, Yeah, I'll send you a link to those because I think it just just changes the game, you know, and I down at my local beach, I've been foiling for four years now, and I just got totally addicted to it. I'm a bit like you. I like learning new things, so I was out there bashing my head in on this liquid force foil which wasn't the easiest thing to learn on but then went on to a smaller one which was even harder um, and then now I realized actually rolling it back and going for a bigger wing makes it a lot simpler and there were a couple of guys that started at the same time as me and they just went out and bought the race wing because they said well, what's the point in buying the beginner wing when I'm going to have to buy the race wing eventually I'll just buy that one and they're still struggling to get yeah, up yeah. you know and it's just sure. that sort of mentality of going okay you can make the sport easy and I think with foiling it was a little bit different with kiting whereas with Kiteboarding itself, you know, as you know, it's an easy sport to learn. I was mm-hmm. chatting to someone earlier and they were asking me about it. And I was like, it's so easy to learn, you know, compared to windsurfing oh, where you had to put the hard miles in yeah. to do a calf jogger yeah. on a windsurf. Sure. You can go out on a kite and you can be turning around in, yeah. you know, a matter of a week or something yeah. like that. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, which relates a little bit to today, really. I didn't know what to expect from this. I kind of had um, my ideas around what it would be. But a lot of the day has been spent talking about, you know, the oceans and how we can affect change and the projects people are working on in monitoring fish stocks and things like that. And, you know, people speaking from Sea Shepherd and those kind of things. You've obviously got um, quite an interest in that more philanthropic side yeah. of life, yeah. I guess. Where did that passion come from? Is that uh, something you've always had, or is it a realization that's come later in life? Came later. I, you know, I, I was always kind of micro focused on like technology and the projects I was working on, the companies I was dealing with, and and uh, and then I think you know the kiteboarding thing. I did it because I enjoyed the sport. But over time, as I started to to go to the same places over time, you could see obvious like and think about it. Anybody listening, when you go to the same beaches you've gone to year after year after year, you're going to notice a couple of things. They're dirtier. There's a lot of crap on the beach all the time, and there's there's no fish left. And so you know, it just it just suddenly hit me like, wow, everything's like fucking dying. Excuse me, yeah, everything's right, dying. Fine, yeah, you know, it's, it's all serious. dying and. Um, and then as I started to think about my role in life and all the things I've worked on using technology to take things, lowering friction in usage of things and making them more replicable and scaling them fast and building companies around this stuff. And then the, the distress that the world's oceans are in um, and the, the, the power of the community that had grown around me, I thought, you know, Maybe the universe wants me to do something with this. So we took that and we turned it into a 501c3. We actually registered as a nonprofit in the United States and started to do uh, you know, active conservation efforts by taking the, the power and the knowledge of our community members to apply to real problem solving and doing something, not just talking about it. Yeah. And we've done things like uh, we created here in Australia – a marine conservation area uh, around the Abrolhos Islands, 116 islands uh, uh, off of the coast, 70 miles off the coast of Geraldton, where uh, there's unique life. It's called, uh, some people refer to it as the Galapagos of Australia. And uh, uh, it's, uh, I think, the, the efforts of our community, it gives us something to rally around that that's meaningful in life. You know, because I... Um, you know, I've made it. I've done fine financially, and no one can take it to their grave. Like, what? What's the purpose of a life if, you know, I'm not somebody that spends a lot of money anyway. You know, so so what do I do? You know, it's like I keep building these companies. They create value. I I've, I've got a couple of kites and a couple of kite boards and a. 35 year old car <laughs> I, I still or maybe 30 what is 31 year old I drive a, th a 1987 BMW 325 you know and it's like what else do I need you know yeah. so, it so, comes to that consumerism thing doesn't yeah, it yeah like, I'm not it's, it's just ridiculous how people are just constantly I need the new yeah. telly you know we just had Black Friday yeah and it just blows my mind that you don't need all this stuff no you know you can just literally have your life in a box yeah. and there's everything that you need yeah yeah I, you know I, like you know if, if you ever go to Burning Man there's this ethos of of you know uh, leave the place exactly as you found it no moop you know matter out of place and uh, and I think, and I have to credit Susie Mai for this because you know I, I used to go to Burning Man a long time ago, but I stopped for a while because it it, it took on a flavor that I, I wasn't me for a while. But it um, uh, it it became more significant 
uh, as a kind of an arts festival in a way, yeah. and a creative a place for creators. And and a lot of my good friends, uh, in fact, a guy I used to windsurf with that became part of our core kite community, uh, ended up named George Mueller. He ended up starting a camp that became very famous inside Burning Man called Robot Heart. Yeah, Playboy magazine yeah. named it as the the number one party camp at Burning Man. <laughs> and I'm not really a partier, but um, I did end up you know going starting to reengage with Burning Man. And uh, Susie basically, you know, but through the ethos of Burning Man of don't leave things there, um, you know, we kind of one-upped it a little bit in terms of a phrase, which was, you know, leave the place better off. Yeah. Then you touched first, touched it. And, uh, and I think the community that has supported each other in the building of companies, we sort of redirected it towards ocean conservation and trying to improve things because... We're in a world where technology accelerates everything rapidly, like really rapidly. And and in a way, it's contributed to the destruction of this planet. You know, the communications networks and the ability to find, you know, like helicopter spot tuna uh, uh, schools and then send boats out. Like it, there's, it's totally unfair now. Yeah, it's cheating. It's really unfair. And so, so I thought, wow, you know, if I'm at a point where I can influence the trajectory and try to leverage technology so it doesn't destroy the planet very quickly, but try to turn that a little bit, then maybe I'll have done something good with my life, you know? And so, so I'm trying to spread that ethos in the community at large because it is a group that helps each other. You know, and kiteboarding is one of those things. It's a sport that awakens your spirit in a way. When I windsurfed, I was a solo animal. I could like tool up in my car, take my board off, rig it fast, and get on the water. Yeah, go out, come back, and not speak to anyone. That, and that's what I did every day, you know. And uh, and that was my solace. Like when I was a little like like wired, I would just go and hit the water, and then be cool. cool. Yeah. And when kiting started, um, after those dangerous moments where I flew across the field, I realized, wow. <laughs> I it would be really good if I knew someone to help me everyone launch. on the beach <laughs> at launching and landing. Yeah, because that was what it was, wasn't it? Suddenly you had to speak to people. I remember that as a real light bulb moment for me because I windsurf on my own, and then you go to the beach. And you're like, oh, is there going to be Growing anyone up. to launch me? Yeah, and then Growing oh, up. I know that guy. Great. Oh, right. hey, Dave, how you doing? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So it builds friendships and community, and I think that was also part of the ethos of what created the community around me. And then I think as I, you know, kind of develop my career and then my interest in sort of, uh, you know, kind of changing the trajectory, it was it was clear that we had that ethos in our community to, to drive change. And so that's, I think, what's been built into a lot of the activities I work on now. It's very hard for me to fund anything now that is just going to be commercially better. Yeah. Because I've, I've done that already, and it doesn't change anything for me. You know, it's so, so when I fund things now, I like to feel like they're going to, they have a shot of having some social or environmental impact in addition to being commercially successful so that they can sustain themselves on their own. Yeah. And so if I see all three of those in a big market and a great entrepreneur, I'll, I'll, I'll engage. Yeah, you'll be keen. Because yes. I guess there's no well, there's no point if it's just more commercialism that's just driving the world into a, a worse place. Somebody you know. else can do that. I'm yeah, not, that's not for me. Do you think we as um, <clears throat> as humanity are going to be able to save the planet? I don't know. I honestly things? don't know. That's quite a yeah. scary thought, isn't it? It is. Like you know, I so I'm just reading a book, uh, Sapiens. Yes. Right now. 
Good book. And, and I don't remember the exact statistic, but there's a chapter in there about, say, like, you know, the, uh, the entry of man to Australia. And because Australia was isolated for so long, it had megafauna, very large animals. And I, I forgot how many, like 400 or something like that. And after millions of years of them existing, there's nothing in, left. In like a few thousand, 70% of those are gone. And, and if you look at the destruction of the ocean, and this, the ocean stuff bothers me a lot because I, I realized myself that it was happening all the time at great rapidity, and I didn't see it because all I saw was the surface of the water. And it, it wasn't until I started to realize what was really happening underneath the surface that I was kind of alarmed. You know, because I think, you know, you look at the megafauna and the fish, it's like 60% of the species on this planet have disappeared in 50 years. And and if you, you know, increase that period to 100, like you think about the pictures and, and storytelling of the Rudyard Kiplings and all that, and you imagine, you know, you think about when you were a very young kid, pictures you'd see of the jungles and forests and animals and, you know, things like that. They're not there anymore. They're just not really there anymore. And that's been in a few decades. Which is frightening. Yeah, so if you clock forward another couple of decades, maybe We're, they're all gone. Which is end of times, really. It's, it's just not sustainable yes, at all. What do we nothing, do then? Nothing for our kids to see. You know, so so I don't know who can change that. You know, so uh, it's not going to be me by myself. Yeah. But I figured I might as well try a little bit. Is there a tide? Because obviously you're a very influential person. Um, you know, or certainly more influential than I would be. I'm sure if you phoned up someone, then you'd probably get the door opened a little bit more. Is there, um, you know, obviously you've got some friends at that kind of level. You know, yeah. you've mentioned a few people there. Are they kind of on the same boat as yes. you? Are we looking at, you know, that the, the big tech investors could be the saviors of humanity because the politicians don't seem to be wanting to do much about yeah. it at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, there is a, you know, it's, it's going to take a community of interest and no one can do it alone. And I think it's not even just the tech leaders. It's got to be something that's a spark inside most of humanity because a lot of people can like, you know, think about the visibility of the plastics issue in the ocean and how that sprung forward in the last, you know, really like the last 18 months, it's all over the news and and restaurants are now going back to paper straws or not putting them in every drink and it's only on request or whatever it is that that only happens when it becomes a a mass issue for everybody right where there's social pressure on everybody and so yes the i think the iconic people on this planet like you know the Richard Bransons or the Andrew Forrest who we had here if they voice something and they have a following people start to think about it yeah. They can grow that. Have idea. to raise awareness, but it's not going to come from like five billionaires. It's going to come from from five billion people, people. that are regular people, and so that's the difference. Yeah, and so I feel like my role in life might be to be a catalyst for that, you know, and and to try to to help. Uh, I can't I can't lead the change by myself, but I can raise the awareness and instigate things and try to bring other solutions to the table where I think technology now matters in a way that, in the same way that you can apply it to technical businesses to, to provide replicability and scalability, 
and social media around that um, address issues in the ocean. So part of what we're doing here is trying to take a wave of entrepreneurial energy that has been focused on commercial interests and tie that to something that could be kind of blue tech. And how do you take those skills and energy and apply them to solving some of the problems so that you can collect the data to know what's happening in the ocean and and to try to set up uh, the technologies to monitor areas to prevent illegal fishing that's like strip mining the ocean. You know, and um, um, I don't know if any of these things will be successful, but I never knew if any of my companies would be successful either. Yeah. And all I knew is that there was an opportunity and that I should try. And you've got to take a chance. Got to try. See got to try. Happens. And got to try to get other people to do it with you. You know, so I think, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the universe has gifted me with the ability to somehow create a following. And it, that's been kind of a consistent thing all my life, even as a kid. And uh, I think I'm going to try to use that. I have to. Well, you've got to. I have to. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I've been told to. Yeah. But somebody up in the sky basically, like, hit me with a head in a two-by-four and said, okay, You've lived your life. I've given you the opportunity to succeed, and you've got that now. You've got some resources. You've got some community. Freaking use Do it. Something with Do it. something good with it. It's interesting because, you know, when I mentioned, oh, you know, is it going to be a bunch of tech people that can save the world? And you were saying, actually, no, it's, you know, you need the five billion people, not yes. the five tech guy, five billionaires. And uh, we used to live in Cabarete in the winters, which oh, you've mentioned. You know, we'd do four months over there. And every time yeah. there was a big storm, the beach would just Garbage. be covered in rubbish. So Mary, my partner, she was like, right, let's go clean it up. Because we yeah. lived just down from Kite Beach. So there were no hotels to come yeah. and sweep it up. We were in this sort of derelict area in a nice apartment. But it was the last one of the run yeah. before it was just, you know, grassland and, um, and palm trees and stuff like that. So we'd start clearing it up. And the really interesting thing I noticed, we'd, we'd take like seven or eight bin bags each and we'd fill them in no time. And the people that would walk up and down the beach, and I came across this thing, there's two types of people in this world. People that will see you cleaning a beach and they'll stop and help. Yeah. And people that will look at, like, look at you like you're just working and doing a job yeah. and walk on by. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, it's the people that see you doing the beach clean and stop and help, and we need yeah. more of those people. Yeah. And more people affecting this change yeah. and more people that are going to make a commitment to use less, to consume less, not right. to buy all that plastic junk right. that you don't right. need. Right, right. Um, and yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. It's you know, it's, it's the five billion people getting together to make a difference yeah. because yeah, we can't gets... rely on the politicians to do anything yes. at this moment in time. I agree. I agree. Which is really scary. Yeah. You had um, a really interesting thing that you said at the end, um, which is kind of your go-to catchphrase, I guess. Um, which is, I'd like you just to give me back, if you would, for the for the readers. So it was the thing that you said at the end of the the presentation, where oh, you were saying uh... about the two things that you're looking for. Um, in people. So I think, you know, over the, over the decades of, you know, kind of communities that I've been involved in, I, and, you know, another facet that is kind of just interesting is um, somehow when I, I, I worked on putting together a startup in the 90s and the universe put Linus Torvalds in that startup, who was a young engineer that created this, you know, Linux technology, um, open source, you know, which was at the time a totally new disruptive way to do things. And it was basically community driven. And uh, I learned a lot from, you know, observing that because he ran Linux on the side while he was in this company, Transmeta, that I had funded. And uh, I went on to basically create, I did create a, an open source based company called IP Infusion that was Linux based routing software. And then later this treasure data started, we open sourced our front end, the Fluent D, which is a data science kind of ingestion uh, data handling layer. And in all those and in the communities around kiteboarding and West Tech Fest and all the other things that I do, um, 
I could see over time, uh, you know, I wanted to understand what is it that makes community? What is it that drives people to coalesce, to achieve action that could be good for this world? And, you know, I, I actually had a, some folks in our community ask people, what is the soul? What What is it that made what we are what we are? And universally what came back and that we ordered them in a certain way is I now have a community built around this. Uh, the community is now called ACTI. Yep. ACTI stands for Athletes, Conservationists, Technologists, Artists, and Innovators. Brilliant. And we have all of those. We have Olympic athletes. We have con- world-famous conservationists like Sylvia Earle involved. We have lots of technologists. Uh, artists like Imogen Heap. Um, Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses, I just invited yep. him. Wow. Uh, and then a bunch of, you know, other innovators like, you know, Sir Richard, we, we do projects with him. And uh, the ethos that drives the community is really three values. One is stand for something greater than yourself. Two is leave every person or place you touch better off than before you touched them. And then the last is uh, everybody's kind of got a special superpower, whatever that might be. Use the powers the universe has granted you to empower others. Amplify, kind of, you know. So so I think if everybody lives to those values, you're able to basically, you know, coalesce, standing for something greater than yourself, coalesce around something, improve the people around you. And then I think empowerment is a big part of it. Letting people just go. You know, I think as a, as a venture capitalist, I'm often finding a, a, an entrepreneur with a core talent and I can provide a network. You know, I tell people my life is a little bit like a giant spider web of people holding hands, and I'll feel vibrations, and then I'll go check out a vibration. And if it resonates with me, I'll jump up and down with that and amplify <laughs> it, and all the other spiders will come running. Yep. And so it's basically how do you create a liquid marketplace for ideas and people and capital to go and solve problems and, and create critical mass around things quickly. And that's kind of what I do in life now. And it's great that you're doing so much good work with the oceans and with the plastic stuff and everything else. I think Thank that's you. really important. Appreciate it. Bill, that's been fantastic. Great. I think we've been chatting for about an hour. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Just All right, flies good. through. you yes. Thank you right. very Thank much you. indeed. That was amazing. Great. Cheers, Bill. There we have it. Bill Tye. What an interesting character. Um, just his business exploits really hit home for me. I mean, some of the things that he's been involved in, some of the directions that he's taken – are truly incredible um, and the fact that he's found this love of water sports and windsurfing and kite surfing um, just ties it all in really nicely. Bill was a really great guest, um, very interesting to chat to, very giving with the knowledge that he has as you can hear from the podcast and I really enjoyed listening back to it and putting this episode together. Next week it's um, back to the usual service of hoping to try and get one of these out every monday after having a bit of time off over christmas um so expect another episode up on monday i'm not sure who that is i've got a couple of episodes that i did whilst i was in australia that are quite interesting i've got australia's first kite boarder and also a gentleman called tim turner who organizes one of the best kiteboarding races in the southern hemisphere um but i'll get working on those and i'll have a new episode for you next week As ever, if you'd like to share this with your friends, tell people about it on social media. Let this episode go as far and as wide as possible. It's great to see those listening numbers growing. And I really appreciate all the positive comments. 
if you've got anything negative to say or any feedback that you think, then by all means get in touch. It's always great to hear from you, both positive and negative, because it means I can keep making these things and keep getting them better. Anyway, I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you're not too hungover after New Year's Eve, or I hope you're getting excited about driving somewhere on New Year's Eve if you're listening to this before the New Year's Eve celebrations. But I'll look forward to speaking to you next week. Until then, you've been listening to Rue Chater and the Intriguing Beings podcast.